This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Snow Hewitson was my first point of contact when I got involved in the Tarmageddon issue in New Zealand back in 2020. It was the start of COVID. Nobody actually knew what COVID was at the time. And the government of New Zealand, the Department of Conservation, was being led by a lady called Eugenie Sage. What Eugenie Sage wanted to do was essentially eradicate tar in New Zealand. Snow Hewitson was the chairman of the Tar Foundation at the time and was my point of contact for information for us to create the videos as well as implement the project that we implemented. The videos essentially put our fingerprint on the map in New Zealand and at the time I felt like Snow's character was one that I wanted to capture in a future Blood Origins episode. So we were fortunate enough to follow Snow around a couple of days in the steep mountains of the Eastern Alps on the South Island of New Zealand and follow him chasing this thing that he loves so much, which is the tar. Snow is an incredible ambassador for hunting and hunter-led conservation efforts in New Zealand. And I hope you get to know him a little bit better through this podcast, as well as a future Blood Origins episode. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Oh, I need to make sure this doesn't touch my... Please. 
Cheers, mate. Cheers. Three years in the making. Yep. We ain't quick, but we got here. We got here. Where are we? <laughs> oh, my God. This is what happens when you cannot hire good cameramen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. L- oh, thank you, Lewis. I really appreciate you. Snow, where are we right now? We're on a high country station in New Zealand called Lock Harbour. What is it known for? Uh, it's known for mainly for merino farming, to be honest, like a lot of these high country farms, but there's some great hunting on here as well. And um, The people own the land? It's a pastoral lease, so they own a lease to it, so it's a long-term lease, and, and if they farm it and farm it well, they get to renew the leases and, and retain it, and they can... Pull that mic just a little bit away from your mouth. They can non-sell the leases. So they can sell the leases? They can sell the lease, yep. To anyone, Kiwis, foreigners? They can sell to anyone, but it's easier to sell to a Kiwi. If it was sold to a foreigner, it would go through overseas investment mm-hmm. criteria, and then um, some of it could be taken back by the Department of Conservation and, and put into um, conservation estate. Lots of uh, lots of wildlife on this property? There is a lot of wildlife, yeah. A lot of um, this red deer, fallow deer... Seen chamois. both of those? Yeah, chamois and tar and um, wild Saw pigs. tar, have not seen chamois, have not seen wild pigs. But we've seen evidence of wild pigs, them rooting. Yep, they'll be there. and I mean, we would have been close to them without seeing them. They'll be in the scrub, but they're definitely there. It's amazing, though, man. This country is so... Like, when you describe it, there's like little pockets of brush and scrub, like you're saying, near the rivers. But not but... You don't have to move 50, 100 yards up the mountains on It's just tussock. It's just grass. Yep. So and yeah. it's high. And yeah. pigs are still in here. Yep. Yep. And it's it's really cold in the winter, so you'd wonder how pigs survive. But What do you mean really cold? Like, oh, like describe it, it. It can get down to minus 20 in here. Minus 20? Yeah. Lots of snow? Lots of snow, but it's not so much the snow that's cold, it's like frost, so you, you get that really cold when you get the inversion layer thing going mm. and, the, and the temperature really drops overnight and that's when the ground will really freeze. So in those kind of conditions, pigs have to be in a mob where there's a whole lot of them together and they huddle together to keep warm, especially young ones. They just wouldn't survive when it's that cold. Mm. Well, Snow Houston, well, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thank you. Have we done one before? We have. We've done, I think we might have done a couple. Done a couple, haven't we? Well, yep. welcome back then. Yeah. Now we're face-to-face, in person, for the first time. Yep. We met each other almost three years ago. Yep. What caused our meeting, Snow? Um, well, it was the, what we called Tarmageddon, when the threat to our tar heard from the then Minister of Conservation, Eugenie Sage, was wanting to cull 25,000 of our precious tar herd. And you didn't know, we, the, the biggest thing there was we didn't actually know how many tar we had, right? It was like, she had a, you said 25,000, I thought I remember her saying like 19,000 plus or minus 9,000. It was a huge confidence interval around the supposed average. Yes, well they they were claiming there was somewhere between seventeen and 50,000 tar. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so if you say, well, we're going to kill 25,000 and, and your bottom level is 17, well... There's no tar left. No, that would have eliminated them. And and in hindsight with what's happened, there probably were more there than 
certainly more than 17, um, not up to the upper level that they claimed there was. But the good thing that came out of us challenging them and going to court was that it slowed that down. So they have, they probably have taken, well, they have taken their 25,000, but they've done it over three years, not, mm. uh, not over one year. Well, back up a little bit. When you took them to court, so the whole time I get an issue, when we got involved, we connected over Facebook Messenger. <laughs> I remember in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, actually having to Facebook message call you because your cell phone doesn't work wherever you live. Yeah. Um, yes. And we connected, and then Peter Ryan and I connected, and we got all the information, and we released the video. And the video got like... 350,000 views or something silly. Yep. Facebook and Instagram, it went crazy. Yep. Yeah, well, there's a lot of... So, you in that in that time frame, you guys, everyone got to... got a, a They got aware of the tar issue and they raised... You guys raised a bunch of money. Yep. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. To take... To take the department to court and challenge them that they hadn't... Um, consulted with us and, and we were successful on that count and so they had to come back and, and talk to us about what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it and and one of the things the judge said that they had to do was only kill half of what they wanted to do and then do a pause and reassess it and so like I sort of intimated to before they it slowed the whole process down so it wasn't a massive hit it, it ended up being done over several years and um and several years over a COVID period, right? Yeah. That nobody knew was actually coming at the time. No, and so that reduced the um, number of animals that would have been taken, particularly by um, tourist hunters who come into New Zealand. So in some ways, yeah, it, it bought them a reprieve. They they did have to face a cull, but not as drastic a cull and not a big smackdown that they were facing. Would Doc, in a cull-type fashion, come onto a private station like this? Do they have the authority to? They could if they enforced it, but to date they haven't done that. They have done a survey across all of these pastoral leases and, and the numbers of tar that they say they saw, they're happy with that number, though, so there's not the pressure to do oh, a big okay. co okay. on, on the pastoral leases. But um, if push came to shove and they really wanted to pursue that, they could, but I think they would get kickback from a lot of the leaseholders. A lot of them would certainly um, fight it because... They see the value in the animals. Um, they do. They value the tar and they have income off them, and they manage them. They they do culls and they manage them to produce trophy bulls and have trophy hunting on their properties. So, what's your position on the whole culling by dock of tar? Well, ideally, it would never come to that. If they were managed properly, it would never get to the stage where you had to do a big cull to to get the balance right again. Um, but if you if you fail to manage them, that that's what repeatedly will happen. And um, even if you use helicopters to do the culling, and and you overuse a helicopter, and you teach the animals to become um, helicopter wary. Yeah, well they they hear the noise, and so they go into the scrub and they hide, and so you're never going to get them. So you have to mix it up, and you have to if you're going to use that, you, you can't overuse it. And typically that's what happens. And mm. so. Um, Control needs to be a mix of recreational and, and guided hunting and commercial recovery of tar carcasses for meat mm -hmm. and even um, some for um, capes and skins and things or whatever. I'd much rather see, if they do need to be, the numbers need to be lowered, that they be 
utilised in some way, not just shot to waste, which is what happens with the dock coal. Mm-hmm. The um, the culling, is there a, an opportunity, I know we've talked about this a little bit, is there an opportunity to sort of learn from what the Wapiti Foundation has done, for instance? They've got now almost a one bull, actually I think Cam Speedy said 1.2 bulls per hind. Because essentially that's what you're looking for, right? You're looking for the resource to be there because the resource, let's be honest here, the resource that hunters are looking for, recreational hunters, tourists coming to come hunt, they're looking for trophy bulls. Yeah, so what we talk about is is a bull-biased herd. So a herd that has a bias towards bulls. So young bulls, when they're born, lived right through to um, adulthood and through to maturity to be taken as a trophy. Whereas the females, you can harvest them for meat and and keep their numbers down by taking them earlier and younger. And so, yeah, the goal is to have a better balance of males to females because the males being the trophy, they're they're kind of what attracts hunters to go and and hunt them. So... Mm -hmm. That you need to have the bulls there to get guys hunting. If you and this is sort of what's happening in the national parks now, they cull bulls in the national parks. So if a guy wants to go hunting, he's not going to go into the national park. He he goes somewhere else where he's more likely to encounter a bull, and so he's less likely to hunt the national park, less likely to be in there taking out the females as well. So you need you need the bulls as like that attraction to get guys to get out and hunt them. It's an incentive. Is there an incentive? Because you could think of it a little bit differently in that recreational hunters. Is there an incentive that could be put in place that would incentivize someone to take a couple of nannies? Uh, I, th- I think it's from a recreational hunting perspective. Well, I think if guys, if more guys tried the meat, they would be they would be more inclined to take them for the meat because the meat is really good mm-hmm. from from particularly younger females, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more it's more of an education process, really. If you could educate them that they need to be part of the solution, and and part of that solution is controlling the numbers of females. So um, take them for meat, and and even the skins, like a female skin or a young tar skin, is a beautiful soft pelt, and it make a really nice. Um, you can make a nice jacket or 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 a blanket or something like that out a of you. Jacket, you can, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, no. You would wear a tar jacket, snow. All right, that's our mission. Our next mission is we're going to harvest a couple of nannies and make you a jacket. Well, you know, I've I've seen skins and things in the, um, tourist souvenir shops in Queenstown and Tekapo and that, and, and they're made from possum skins and lamb and that. But if you actually made something similar from tar skin, it, it would be a beautiful, soft, warm fur mm-hmm. pelt that people would be really surprised. People would ask you, well, what is this? And mm-hmm. it's it's something that... It's another thing that's underutilized that no one is doing and no one's thought about. Hmm. Snow, are you still working with for the Tar Foundation? I'm still part of the committee and still contribute to um, the group that sort of makes the decision making. And when we have meetings, I have. You were the chair of the Tar Foundation when we talked, right? Three years ago? Yeah, I was. And and when we set up the foundation, we made sure that um, the chair would only have. Um, you'd only be in the chair for a period of three years. Okay. And we sort of felt that um, 
that's good for the foundation to have new blood all the time. Course, but, yeah. but also you don't want people to become burnt out. And a lot of us have been involved in this for a long time. And as it panned out with with actually having to go to court and be in quite a confrontational role with the department. And over that three years, once that was up all, and we were sort of getting back to wanting to try and work with them and, and mm-hmm. trying to um, reconcile and go forward, it was high time that I stepped aside. Yeah, anyway. It's almost you need a new blood to you be do, able to develop yeah. those new relationships. Yeah, because yep. I'd been in a conflict situation. <laughs> and, and to be honest, yeah, I, I knew that. Like I'd, um, I'd much rather someone come in who had the attitude of wanting to rebuild and, and, and go forward again. And, mm-hmm. and um, we certainly had that with Kaylin Pinney when she took it on. But Kaylin comes from a science background and very quickly... Some of the work she did for us was recognised by the Game Animal Council, and those guys have snapped her up and got her working for them now. Oh, so great! Which, and that's good for us too. It's good for the foundation because she's in there and and she knows what what we do and what we what our goals and aspirations are. But um, it was a pity that we lost her when at such a crucial time when she had so much to offer. But um, certainly wouldn't hold her back, and certainly wouldn't have discouraged her from taking on the role that she has because that's. Um, beneficial to all hunting, the Game Animal Council, and, and that was something that she had aspired to do. So um, I really wish her well on that, and I know she'll make a good job of it. Who's in the chair role right now? So right now is David Keane, and David was like the um, vice chair, so he sort of got that landed on his plate. But so he's he's in there for the next three years? Well, he'll be, yeah, he'll be in there for two years anyway, and then um, he may well take on another term. We'll just... Oh, okay, because he's filling in after... Yeah, so he's he's in, I suppose you could say he's... A uh, temporary role to fill, to finish the term of, who did you yeah. say, Susan? Kalen. Kalen, Kalen, yeah. So, I mean, Dave would have always been um, chair at some stage, but he's ended up in there a bit sooner than maybe he thought it was going to happen, and, and he's doing a good job of it. Um, like all of us, he's got his own business and, and a family that he's got to provide for and, and got to look out for himself and he's doing the Tar Foundation role as a volunteer so it is a big ask and um, ultimately long term somehow we've got to find ways to fund what we do so that mm-hmm. we can actually at least recompense people or, or even find um, people with the right kind of qualifications and skills and things and, and employ people to take on those roles mm-hmm. so that so that there's someone there advocating for TAR 24-7 and not sure, just sure. not just when it, everything hits the fan and it's a panic to rain in what's been happening. So, so what is your um, I don't think when you introduce yourself you didn't tell people what you do. Well I'm um, a hunting guide but I do some contracting work as well. Hunting hunting guide is not enough for 12 <laughs> months of the year, despite what a lot of people think. Um, and what's fact, your speciality in terms of a hunting guide? Oh, probably the tar. Probably the tar. I, I've called my operation Hunter, and um, the tar is... I wouldn't say it's my favourite animal to hunt, but, it, but it's the one I'm drawn to the most. You can't really compare... A red stag to a tar or a fallow buck or just or doesn't a look the same on the mountain, eh? No, and, and they're all fantastic to hunt, and they all have their own challenges and and the terrains and everything. So I, I wouldn't like to say I certainly don't think 
any are better than the other, but definitely the tar is the one that I keep coming back to. It's the one that sort of mm. captured my imagination from right from very young. And so describe for someone who has no idea what a tar looks like. What can you describe a a, a big bull when you come across him? If you saw him from a distance in the tussock on an open face and you were looking through binoculars or something like that, you would think you were looking at a bear, like a, a big mm. grizzly bear, because they're so they're so big and powerful looking and they walk like they own the mountain. They've got this rolling gait that they walk slowly like, like I own this mountain, get off it, it's mine, you know. They've, they've got that sort of air about them. and, and um, A very distinctive, like, black dot on the landscape. Yeah, you you can't mistake it. Once you've seen one, you're like, oh, there's a bull. Oh, there's a bull. Oh, yeah, there's I, a bull. It, it reminds me of what I once had a Danish guy say to me, oh, you'll have to tell me what these tar look like. What <laughs> what am I looking for? And and I tried to explain, and then I saw one. I said, oh, look up there on that slip. There's one. And he looked at me and he said, oh, it looks like a muskox. You should have said to me, <laughs> it looks like a muskox. And I said, well, I've never seen a muskox, so you'll have to tell me what they look like. But... Yeah, um, a big rounded shoulder and a big shaggy beast and powerful looking animal that's at a home. goat with like the mane of a lion. Yeah, um, I've heard that said before. People compare the mane to the mane of a lion, but you don't think it looks like it when it's I full, no, f- f- you know, wafting in the wind. No, because they flare their mane. They make it stand on end and and they use it as part of their dominance display. Okay, and, okay, and. I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a protection thing when they fight because they'll hook their horns underneath each other and the mane helps with that. And mm-hmm. I think a lion's mane is a lot about, um, when lions fight, it's a lot about protection from claws and teeth. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I may be wrong on that, but um, mm-hmm. when, I, when, I look at right. a, when I look at tar and I see how tar use that to display, they, they puff the mane up and, they, and they're trying to make themselves look bigger than the, than the bull that they're trying to intimidate. And... And also the, they shed that mane. They shed the mane every spring and they grow a new one every autumn. So it's very much like... That's incredible. It's very much like a stag does with his antlers. They grow a new set and they use... And tar don't have antlers, they have horns. They, and that's right. And they, they don't they don't come together and push and shove. They'll use their horns underneath and, and try and hook the other ball off his feet. Interesting. And, and those things make them quite different, like... The mane, there's nothing else has a mane, and most of your goats and sheep species actually butt heads. Mm. But tar fight dirty. They try to get under each other and, <laughs> and open up, rip the, rip them under the shoulder and, and tip them off their feet and bowl them down the bluffs. And and I don't think there's anything else quite like that either. So, mm. so someone's listening to us anywhere in the world, and they're like, holy smokes, I want to I wanna hunt the tar. Should we describe what today was like? Well, <laughs> it was pretty typical tar hunt. It was a lot of glassing. I mean, even yesterday. Lots of glassing. Yeah, even yesterday we went and we, we had a really good look and, and we'd picked out some bulls we were going to go and have a go at. Mm-hmm. And then when we got up there this morning, we spotted a couple of others that straight away looked like bigger, more mature type bulls. And they're on the move, but they were moving towards a, a group of females and young, so... We were hoping that once they joined up with them, they would stay with them. So then it comes down to... It's a little windy here. It comes <laughs> comes down to you have to make the call which which area you're going to head to and which group are you going to actually target. And um, 
we got it right because once we got up the mountain, the ball sort of came out onto a ridge in front of us and um, we had to actually climb quite quickly and quite high quite fast to get up to where they were before they went any higher when they, they go back into the bluffs to bed. So you start early in the morning and try and catch them low and we were in that classic scenario of having to push up the hill really quickly to catch up with them and we managed to do that. How far did we did we climb? Oh... Uh, I don't know exactly. A couple of hundred metres? Oh, more than that, probably. Um, probably a K? Uh, certainly probably a K from the flat here, from the hut. Upwards? Yeah. Upwards, side hilling, and getting jabbed. You you, do, you actually don't think of New Zealand as a very prickly landscape. Tussocks, you know. Oh, my gosh. You've got things that want to... They... they, they it's almost like they require a blood tax for the mountain. Yeah, well... And what did we call them? The Spaniards. Yeah, the uh, um, Spaniard, wild Spaniard. Um, it's almost it's almost as sharp as a cactus. It's got a real spear-like oh. point on it. Dude, it, it went through my pants. You can see here, I've got dried blood on my pants. It went through my pants, stabbed me, and then my legs were bleeding, bleeding through my pants. Yeah, it's always it's always in amongst the tussocks, so you, it's camouflaged in there and it's disguised and you don't realise it's there and, and you'll walk into it or you'll slip and you'll go to grab what you think is a tussock. handful of tussock and there'll be a Spaniard in there and it'll just spear you. And well, all of our hands are all jacked up, they're all got scratches on them, they've got pokes everywhere, blood everywhere. Yeah, so the more time you spend in that country and the more time you get jabbed with that, you keep sort of having this conversation with yourself, well, I, sh I should know better than this, but it'll, <laughs> it'll get you every time. Yeah, well, they just are invisible almost, right? Yeah. It's just, again, you're side-hilling a mountain. What you know? What are we talking, 45 degrees, 50 degrees, 60 degrees mountains that we're climbing today? In places, yeah, definitely. Definitely? Yeah, and, and you're using the tussock essentially as a, you're, you know, as a balance tool to... Just really, just keep yourself going. Keep yourself from falling. Keep you pull yourself up the mountain. You just can't help but smash those Spaniards with your hands. Yeah, Lewis yeah. looks like he's got chickenpox. <laughs> 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 no, you you make use of all of that exactly as you're saying. Um, using it to pull yourself up, and and um, when you come downhill, using it to hold you back, and. The great thing about those plants is they are really tough and resilient, so they don't pull out. Mm -hmm. You can grab a handful of uh, the snow tussock and, and it will take your weight, no problem at all. And um, It's one of the things we always sort of talk about when we're hunting tar. If there's an area you need to get into and um, it's looking pretty steep or, or, or a bit dodgy, if there's plenty of vegetation and scrub on it, then it, it's probably going to be fine. It's going to be a good option. Wherever mm -hmm. it's bare country, you want to keep off it. Mm -hmm. Just because it's going to be slippy. Yeah, so, I mean, if you've got the scrub, you've got much more to hang on to and something that will um, something that will stop you from falling or, or you'd be able to arrest a fall if you did slip. And the tar will use that too. They'll use the vegetation. So if you're in the country where you're wanting to try and find a route through it, you try and find their trails and follow them. And it's not always necessary that you can go where they can go, but if they haven't gone there, then sure as eggs, you can't. So, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, definitely 
a level of physical fitness is required to tackle these mountains. Yeah, you need you need good legs and you need good lungs because um, it's a real aerobic workout, but it's pretty hard work on your legs. So, um, especially coming downhill. Yeah, at the end of the day, the coming down is the hardest part, and if you if you don't have those muscles in the front of your thighs that do all the braking work, and you're not used to that. Um, you can handle a big day of it, but the next day you'll certainly know about it. You'll. Oh, I know. You'll, tomorrow we're going to be walking like yeah, geriatric yeah. old men. <laughs> like like we spent too long on a horse or something like that. That's <laughs> about what it feels like. But so, how can somebody? How can people connect with you if they're like, man, I want to hunt the tar. Oh, they plus can, this is your last season, right? That's what you told me on the mountain, right? Halfway down the down the downhill. Well, I keep saying, <laughs> I keep saying, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this for, um, but I do know that if, if you stop, if you'll I never stop, start it'll, again. Yeah, it'll be too hard to start again. But um, yeah, so, I mean, people can find my website, no problem at all. Huntarnewzealand.com. Yep, Huntar. Or just Huntar.com. Yeah, and um, get in touch if you want to talk about it and you're interested in seeing tar. Oh, yeah, we saw a lot, bunch of tar. Yep. Not allowed to say how many. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know where to look. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Snow, thank you, man. I um, I know there's been a long time coming. And, uh, I, you know, we're essentially buried in your backyard. A place that is, is a part of your heart, right? Is that a, a, a fair statement? Yeah. I. Um, how long have you been hunting here? It must be coming up 12 years at least, and it's uh, it's just one of those places. It it does it gets into your it's part of becomes part of your soul. And uh, the day that I can't come back here again um, would be a sad day. And we'll bring you with a wheelchair. <laughs> we'll wheelchair you up the well, track. Yeah, Jack will carry you, right, Jack? Now I need a young guy to help me out to do the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, so, I mean, you know, like, this is the thing for me is I started doing this when I was young and that's like, I've been hunting them for 40 years and I'm I'm 60 years old now and mm-hmm. and um, the hunting got better and better and, and I learnt more along the way and I'm still learning stuff now so I've never got tired of it. And You've never been chasing tar for 40 years, do you think? Yeah, I have. I've never got tired of seeing them and, and every hunt you do you learn something new and, and so it's always been a challenge, it's always been a draw that draws you back and... And um, yeah, these mountains and this type of country is is just it's imp- it's impressive. Like it really, really is impressive. It kind of makes you feel insignificant when you're out there. It the makes mountains you feel are massive. Yeah, and I think it's good for us as humans to not feel like we control everything and we can do whatever we want. You, it puts you back in your place. And when you do get to the top of the mountain, you feel like you've really achieved something. So mm. it's hard to describe what it does and, and what it means but I know that everyone that gets into it enjoys time in the mountains and you, you come you can go back to work and you feel like oh I can I can face 9 to 5 again and yeah and and you're always thinking of the next trip and the next time away and that's what keeps you going and keeps you sane and keeps you motivated well we certainly got a good dose of good New Zealand air up in these magnificent mountains today it's good cold dense air like goes through turbochargers. That's what you need to work hard. So that's right, that's right. Thank you, Snow Houston. No problem. Well, that's it for today.
I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly,